in re-looking at even the trailer. I don't know how to leave it off. I read that in Talk Like a Cinematographer magazine. It's just gritty and gorilla and no holds barred. It doesn't look like anything else and you just didn't expect to see it. Hey, welcome in, Fright Clubbers. This is the Fright Club Podcast, live from the home studio. And she is Hope Madden. He's George Wolf. And we're from madwolf.com. And um, we're back talking about cinematography. We are not cinematographers, but it's the way... (laughs) (laughs) But uh, you don't have to be. It's one of those situations where you don't have to know all the technical jargon uh, and the ins and outs to know what looks fantastic. Right. And I think one of the things, uh, two of the things, actually, I think that go hand in hand in making any kind of a movie great, but particularly horror, I think, is uh, sound design oh. and cinematography. Yes. You know, and there are so many. When, when we started looking into how many there were that we should include, well, oh. I'm just going to tell you, we're going to take a couple of detours. So we didn't exactly <laughs> do fuzzy math. We still have five. But in like embedded inside some of those, we're going to go off on a detour about oh, some yeah. of the just remarkable work of cinematographers and horror films. Yeah, the more I started looking into these and doing some research, we could easily do two podcasts on this because there are just so many. And I'm glad you mentioned sound design because that's more my area and we've got to do that one of these days. We do. We really do. I should probably just let you pick. (laughs) Because actually there's one on this list that would uh, definitely qualify, I think, for me for sound design because you're right. That's another area where, man, if it... Well, let's put it this way. As, I, as other people have said that I agree with, if you don't have great look and you don't have great sound, that can just torpedo a film yeah. so quickly. Absolutely. Uh, and so many of these uh, are definitely great, not only in the sound department, but for sure in the cinematography department. And that's why we're going to talk about them. But first, we want to say thank you to our very special guest last time out. I hope you caught the podcast on Dark Ages Horror with director George Popoff. That was awesome that he agreed to come on. It was super cool. We don't often have film directors. Uh, we have in the past. Usually we just let them off the hook. We're like, just stay. We'll talk about your movie and then you can take off. He had done all the work. He yes. had watched all the movies on the list and revisited the ones he'd already seen. He'd never seen an Evil Dead movie before. Right. So he watched all of the Evil Dead movies in preparation to just talk about one of them. And it was just really cool to hear his insights. I mean, to, you know, to, to get a perspective for somebody who has made movies before, mm-hmm. um, you know, and, and very good ones. So if you haven't checked out Hex, which is the one that we talked about, or their new one, The Droving, you ought to. They're both very, very good. Yes. The Droving, as we said, it has people in animal masks. <laughs> so right away, that's a thumbs up on my end. But no, it was really great to hear not only his insight on making his own films, but he was really excited. I think genuinely so to talk about these other movies. As he told us, he was more excited to talk about those than to talk about his own yeah, films. Yeah, he did which, say that. You know, that's, that's a funny thing to say, but the more it went on, I think he, he might have meant it. Yeah. Well, I think he's, you know, he's on kind of a, a, an engagement right yeah. now where he keeps talking about his own movies. Right. So he, I think he just was excited to get a chance to be a fan, and it was so cool to talk to him. He's very funny. He was a really, really great guy. So that was awesome. And then today's podcast is actually the result of a poll. Yeah. And so Eyeballs came in second. Which means that probably we'll be doing eyeballs soon. <laughs> so even if you're a loser, you're you're a winner down the line. Right. Eyeballs. Well, we, we, we have done that, though, so far. Yeah. In all of our polls we've done, the number two has been a, a podcast that came up seems, not long after. Seems fine. And since we were just talking about Lucio Fulci a minute ago, 
prepare yourself. You're going to be seeing. I don't think George is going to be a big fan of Lucio Fulci, is my guess. Uh, I mean, I know you've seen some, yeah, but I don't yeah, think yeah. you've ever seen like, like a block of them. So. Right. Well, right now, off the top of my head, not not one of my faves. No. But I'm, I'm open-minded. He's definitely got a preoccupation with eye gouging, though. <laughs> All right. <laughs> we'll see how that goes. We're getting ahead of ourselves, so eyeballs down the line. But today's cinematography, and I can understand why it won a poll. Yeah. Because any movie fan... I would has ha, almost has to be a fan of great cinematography. Yeah, it, it, so much it drives how successful a film can be, and it certainly comes through in all of the ones, not only on the list but all the other ones, all the other detours that we're going to take. So, uh, with that in mind, should we just jump right in? Let's, because we got a bunch to talk about, and I guess the one we'll start off with would be probably the classic of this bunch. It's from 1964. And it's a collection of four Japanese folk tales with supernatural themes. Kwaidan. This is a movie, Yoshio Miyajima is the cinematographer of this movie, and it was nominated for Best Foreign Language Film, uh, and it's long. It's, it's a little over three hours long. It tells four different folk tales that are kind of spooky. Some of them you'll recognize because they're very, uh, it's clear that, that other films have, have taken from pieces of these, but I wanted at least one of the films in this list to be very stagey in the way that it shot. So uh, a film that was looking to do something that didn't look like real life. For, for the, all four of these, the majority of the stories are shot on, on sound stages. Uh, there might be one or two actual location shots, which are gorgeous as well. So it's really, it's the cinematographer as well as the set designer, you know, uh, and set decorator all working together to just create the most glorious look for and very distinct looks for all four of these different shorts, the whole anthology. Yeah, and the word Kwaidan can be translated to either spooky tale or ghost story. So that makes a lot of sense. It and does. Uh, the four vignettes were chosen to represent the four seasons of the year. And did you mention the, the director? I did not. Director Masaki Kobayashi. Yes. If I pronounced that right. And he apparently trained first as a painter before beginning a career uh-huh. as a filmmaker. And that really comes through in this because some of those, like you mentioned, they're so stagey and so painterly. First of all, the colors jump out right away. and But yes, how things are staged almost in looking like a painting. Oh, so yeah. the, the fact that he trained as a filmmaker makes perfect sense. I'm, I'm sorry, the fact that he trained as a painter makes perfect sense. Yeah, and I feel like one of the things that I want to talk about uh, outside of this are some of the other great filmmakers who were known for their cinematography, but who did things in a very stagey way. And that, I mean, so Mario Bava. Mario, Mario Bava is one of the, just the most distinctive visually horror filmmakers you're ever going to find. And the, the one that reminds me the most of this, in a weird way, is Black Sabbath, because it's so clearly sound stages. But uh, in a lot of his were, and they were so just phenomenal to look at, they just created an entire universe for you to see. I mean, that he didn't try to do anything that looked authentic, and instead he created these spooky, 
just visual masterpieces. And you can't really, I mean, if you talk about Maria Bava, clearly I think you also have to talk about Dario Argento, mm-hmm. whose, whose films were never nearly as stagey looking, as it, which is to say they don't look like they were built on a stage in the way that the, the other two did. But, you know, he took the whole boldly colored giallo idea and just ran with it. And of course, his all time, especially visually, especially in terms of set design and cinematography, is Suspiria. Yeah. That is just yep. a, an, an incredible movie to look at. It is. And it's interesting, again, you mentioned stages and the stage and staginess of this movie because uh, in order to achieve the appropriate separation between the four parts of the film, he filmed, the director, Kobayashi, filmed on two separate sound stages. Oh, sure. Had to do that, which, which again, makes sense when you, look about how, when you think about how he put it together. And I don't really know what this means, but he filmed, speaking of cinematography, he filmed in true toho-scope ratio of two... 35 to 1. Okay. So. Brandon, are you on? Are you going to tell us what that means? <laughs> I, read, I read that in Talk Like a Cinematographer magazine. So I hope, uh, I hope my homework was, was worthwhile. <laughs> but yeah, it's, uh, all you got to do really is watch the trailer. Yeah. And it'll suck you it's in. It's true. Because it, it just looks like, it, it looks otherworldly. Yes, oh. absolutely does. And then the, the, third, the third of the four shorts uh, has a lot of animation. Not active animation. Still screen. Mm-hmm. You know, cartoonish animation that you look at and it's it's so I think it's because by that time you're well into two hours into the film by the time you start to see this this flat animation you're already sort of accustomed to almost that style of the film so far is that it just feels so it it's such a perfect fit and then the the short that it kind of moves into is a lot more kind of garishly colorful than the earlier it's just it's really, it is an incredibly gorgeous film. Yeah, and who doesn't like just a series of ghost stories? <laughs> That's right. Creepy, cool-looking ghost stories. So that is number five on our top cinematography in horror, the classic from 1964, Kwai And uh, did you mention all the ones you wanted to mention in addition to that? I did. All right. Don't want to leave anything out. No. Because we are talking about a bunch of them. So moving up to number four, this is, boy, we've, it seems like we've been talking about this movie uh, on a bunch of podcasts yeah. lately, but that's okay. This is from 2009, a grieving couple retreat to their cabin in the woods, hoping to repair their broken hearts and troubled marriage. But nature takes its course. Things go from bad to worse. The cinematographer is Anthony Dodd Mantle on Antichrist. He said you wanted to help me! Where are you? Nature is Satan's church. The evil you talk about is an obsession. No! Did you want to kill me? Not yet. We have talked about this one a lot, and to a degree, I thought about not, because I'm going to talk about like a whole bunch of other cinematographers and films in this little section. This is kind of where I'm going to go off on a tangent. But, you know, just in re-looking at even the trailer, I... I don't know how to leave it off. Oh. The opening sequence yes. really is poetry. It really is. And then the way that they change out the look of the film from the opening sequence to sort of the hospitalization and confinement at home sequence to once they're in the woods. I yeah. mean, it's, it's like three separate films. They, each segment has its own look. And the look of the, of the segment feeds the atmosphere so tremendously. Yeah, 
the opening, I remember seeing it for the first time. And of course, the opening is so tragic. It is. But so beautiful at the same yeah. time. Not only how it looks, but the music yeah. that's playing, the aria mm -hmm. that is playing, but both the prologue and the epilogue scenes in this were shot with a high-speed camera uh, running between 600 and 1,000 frames per second. And then camera speeds were experimented with throughout the film, and not just within the shot, but within certain parts of the image to create the, the distorted lack of logic. And it, it was meant to add disturbing qualities. And uh, actually, the cinematographer, Anthony Dodd-Mantle, was quoted as saying, what you're seeing is slowed down so much that for the first time in the cinema, I had the sense of watching a film in a way that I look at a painting. Oh, I can see that. I yeah. mean, it is. It's incredibly painterly, especially some of the scenes in the woods. Yeah. Oh, um, yeah. Of the trees, mm -hmm. of the big tree with all the roots. Yeah, it has a... And it's, and it's interesting that it does have such this beautiful artistic look to it because once it gets horrific... I mean, it's no holds barred. It is nasty. <laughs> Painful, you might say. It is a nasty movie once it really gets unhinged there. So it's, so it's interesting to me to marry that with such a gorgeous, lush cinematography and, and, uh, and visual feel. But that's one of the things, not just in this film, the many things that come to mind when you think of director Lars von Trier. Yeah. I, the, the way it looks does always come to top of mind when I think of him. Uh, because melancholia in particular. Melancholia. And, and, and this film... Apparently, the producers wanted it to be in 3D. Can you oh imagine some of that in 3D, uh, which Von Trier scrapped? But yeah, for, <laughs> for all his, his, his faults and his benefits, I always think with the Von Trier film, it's going to look glorious. Yes. And, and this one certainly does, especially yeah. the opening and the epilogue. So I think you're right. How could you leave it off? It's well, just tremendous. Well, here's going to be the challenge to everybody. Now I'm going to go through everything that could have been in this spot. <laughs> okay. Because what I was looking for for this spot was the, the poetry of dread. How mm -hmm. the cinematographer creates a dread that matches the specific horror of the film. And so if you take, for example, we've talked about this a lot of times, The Exorcist. Mm -hmm. And the way... Early on, it's wide, 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 and you see like all of these small people out in the desert, and then they move to the city, and it's a little bit closer. So you see less of the, you know, it's a little bit closer up on the on the on the individuals in the cityscapes or in the hospitalscape, and then they move into the house, and it's smaller and more cramped, and then they move into the bedroom, and it's even shorter, yeah. and you know, you're more and more sucked into the story, and you and feel cold and trapped. <laughs> yes. Yes. Um, and, you know, that was just that was just masterful. Uh, and another one that I think the very first thing that I noticed when I watched the film, The Reflecting Skin. Oh, yeah. Was uh, Dick Pope cinematography. The way that every scene, it, it, again, it looked very painterly, but every scene looks like this bucolic Idaho of the 1950s in a way that's also... There is something wrong here. The, the way that, that the cinematography and the director are able to capture not just this sort of wholesome, you know, wheat field. Oh, the, you know, I was going to bring up Rockwell. the wheat fields. Yeah. Oh, man. But also that underneath there's something rotting mm -hmm. here. And I just, it's such a gorgeous movie. Yeah, it, I mean, it looks like nothing else. Even though I don't like that movie on, as a whole as much as you do, right. I, I can't argue with you there. I yeah. mean, just the wheat fields alone. Glorious, yeah. glorious. Yeah. And another one that looks great, and it looks so much different than his other films, is A Tale of Two Sisters. Oh, yeah. Right? It was like 
every fr- and again it's it's a marriage with set decoration because every frame is just saturated with these colors but also you're constantly looking just off frame you know and and it also happens to Rosemary's baby you're constantly the way they set it up so your eye is like what's over there what is just <laughs> off the screen which i just think is such a fascinating and really effective device particularly for horror yeah that it's not just what's in your screen it's what's not what's in the frame it's what's not in the frame but the way in both of those films it's set up it is set up specifically to make you look around like what don't i see yet let's get over there and then the other one which i think does it even better and it matches the film so much better and i want to thank phantom dark day for reminding me to add this to this is it follows <laughs> oh yeah talk about looking at all corners of the screen yes you you betcha because you're constantly looking who, who who is it who is slowly walking toward us right to kill us right yeah that that's very yeah thank you dark dave that would be one that we'd be sorry we left off if yes. we didn't mention it right because the effect of this moving camera especially in early enough scenes that the that the characters don't truly know what's going on yet but we have figured it out and so there, the characters aren't looking, mm-hmm. but the camera is moving in circles around them, and we're looking. We're <laughs> like, go back around. Who's closer? Who's yes. closer? Who's yeah. still walking toward us? It is such an incredible use of cinematography to develop dread. Yeah, and another one, of course, uh, nominated. Actually, it won. It won the Oscar for Best Black and White Cinematography is, is Psycho. Oh, yeah. The way, I mean, there are certain staged shots of the detective falling backwards, you know, which, which puts you in the mind of something like Jaws, of that incredibly oft-used shot, mm-hmm. you know, the, the pullback from mm-hmm. Roy Scheider. But I also think that there's something in the way that they angle the shots oh, to, yeah. Make, yeah, to make Norman look wholesome, like a good guy, you know, and then to make other people look more menacing, and then that shifts slightly. And again, it's another one where you're constantly, like, looking past him to see what's going on. And then how they use the taxidermy mm-hmm. uh, in, in the offices. Oh, That's yeah. creepy. Oh, uh, absolutely. And light and shadow. Yeah, for sure. Psycho is another classic example. The Shining. You know, just that scene of the little yellow bug, you know, driving up the mountain mm-hmm. and through the mountain. And it should be, it's got this sense of being happy. Oh, this is a happy thing. But at the same time, it's got this sense of a toy that's gonna, you know, that like just gonna go and be destroyed. And then, of course, it's it's echoed later with the uh, uh, big wheel on that carpeting. And again, I mean, I can't, I, I know I just keep saying it, the way set decoration plays into the way it's filmed, especially in this movie, is just insane. By the way, since we're talking about The Shining, we just got Disney Plus, okay? And what's the first thing we watched on Disney Plus? <laughs> The Simpsons, The Shinning. That's right. One of the greatest things ever to air on TV. You want to so, tell them, why did we get Disney Plus, George? We got Disney Plus. It was to see um, Artemis Fowl. That's uh, not really true. <laughs> That's no, a it lie. It was because of Hamilton, <laughs> which is coming out on July 3rd on Disney Plus. There I said it, and I'm not ashamed. Fantastic. All right. So the, the last one that I want to bring up, uh, because... It was the one. This is the one that was going to make the list. And in the end, I swapped it out because, only because, it's just not horror. The Mm. Handmaiden. The Handmaiden, yeah. What a, good Lord, what a gorgeous looking film. I understand the argument uh, between horror and not horror. I would still definitely call it a genre film. Yeah. But whether or not it's horror, but my Lord, does it look just, just glorious. I remember we were, 
we were really quite shocked it did not get nominated for cinematography. Yeah, yeah, more than shocked. Yeah, it's a gorgeous movie. Everything Channel Park does, honestly, every single one. Old Boy, for for what it is, you know, it's still, that cinematography is spectacular. Mm -hmm. Stoker looks great. I mean, Thirst, everything he does, and he, and he often works with the same person. Chung Wan Chung, it just does. It always looks amazing. But I think that the top of their game was Handmaiden. It was just, um, it was just this fluid, gorgeous, mysterious, sensual kind of a, an experience, and it was just a glorious movie. Yeah, tough call. Tough, tough call. call. There's a lot we of great ones Antichrist. in there. I know. But, uh, Antichrist number four. By the way, uh, welcome to everybody watching on Vimeo. Thank you to our uh, base command, Serenity <laughs> and Grace, taking care of things. And also, we should be live on the Gateway Film Center Facebook page. So yes. if you're checking us out on there, thank you very much, and welcome, Fright Clubbers. Always appreciate that. And uh, we move up to number three, and I have to uh, stand corrected because I thought our first film, Quaidon, was our classic. No, no, I forgot about this one, and how could I? This is from 1922. Vampire Count Orlock expresses interest in a new residence and real estate agent Hutter's wife, Nosferatu. This actually is listed, from what I found, as, well, the cinematographer, Fritz Arno Wagner, yeah, and then another, and the, yes, and then another name uncredited, Gunther Krumpf, mm. which is a great German name. <laughs> it's a great German name. Um, so the two of them together, and this has an unmistakable look. Yeah, it does. This was another one. I wanted to make sure that I included something that went back in time so that we were, you know, really paying attention to where we came from and what astonishing things they could accomplish, you know, in the very, very early days of cinema. And so I considered, um, I considered Cabinet of Dr. Caligari, but that, to be honest with you, that to me is far more set direction than it is cinematography. Mm. Um, that, you know, it's a glorious looking movie. It but is, I, yeah. I've got to say, I, I think that has a lot more to do with the way the sets are created to give you that sort of off-kilter, black and white, bold uh, strokes kind of a look. And then the other one I, I really considered was Vampire. Which is another one that's that's stunning, black and white, and and very atmospheric and very poetic looking. But I went with Nosferatu because I love it the most, um, and also because I think that along with Max Schreck's unbelievable performance, I think that Murnau was able to to create a very different kind of vampire atmosphere. With him, I mean, it wasn't. I, I was. It's a. It's a very early vampire adaptation, but it wasn't the seductive count that we would eventually become very used to. Mm -hmm. It was much more like a naked mole rat, you know. <laughs> yeah. uh, you know, a pestilence, a plague, and I thought that that was kind of fascinating. And also, you know, some of the the cool tricks of him standing up really quickly, or of the creeping shadow up the steps, like the the most iconic images from the film are part of the reason why it was so groundbreaking at the time because people at that time did not understand what they were seeing. They were slain by what it looked like, and I think that it stands up still today. I mean, it's still oh. one of my very favorite movies. Yeah, it's getting a lot of great comments uh, in the live chat. Thank you so much for that. Um, Brandon says, I love the use of shadow in this movie. Exactly. You can't talk about the, the look of this movie without the light and shadow. So much of it is shot in low-key which helps the, the, the creepy mood. And then Count Orlock is often shot 
in high contrast to, of course, that uh, shows off his, his pale and his creepy look. And then you throw in what Murnau was doing with the arches and the doorways and the gates to frame the characters. And even, it's in black, even if it's in black and white, it still <laughs> manages to convey such a mood with light and shadow oh, and yeah. angle. It is, it is amazing. It's almost like you totally forget that there's even any, any use for color. It's oh, so, absolutely. You know, and it's part of sort of hand-in-hand. Hand, I'm sure you could say it was hand-in-hand hand with the German Expressionist movement at the time. But, yeah, what he was able to, to convey just with, with light and shadow, as, as Brandon says, is amazing. And uh, Stephen says, the shot over Orlock on the deck of the yeah. ship haunts my nightmares. Yes, that's what I'm talking about, yeah. a combination of set design and lighting. And not only that, that's a, that's a great shot for perspective and just angle because you're, it's, it's the one shot in the film where you're looking right up, like up at him. He's, so, he's just so, so creepy. He's just so menacing. And then the other thing that I, I love about, we, we had this conversation at a Fright Club Live one time. None of us. I'm looking at you out there as well. We're not big fans of Francis Ford Coppola's Dracula. I get it. Neither are we. But I loved uh, his use of shadow. I mean, everybody does. The way he used shadows, particularly with, with Dracula back when he was sort of the old lady Dracula back in Transylvania. But that always made me think of the way Murnau used shadow to announce the menace mm-hmm. of his vampire. And mm-hmm. I felt like it was clearly an ode. It was clearly a throwback to that. But I think that that just speaks to you know, how clever that was when he did it in 1922. Oh, oh my yeah. God. Yeah. And also, if you notice throughout the movie, he doesn't use much camera movement. The shots are all fairly simple, with most being full shots. There's some, there's some uh, looking out windows and things like there's some high angle shots, low angle shots, but not a whole lot of camera movement, right. um, which almost adds to the creepiness of it, like you, you can't get away. Yeah, that there's no movement. You are caught there and sort of transfixed in his, right. uh, in his, in his grip, yes. and you can't get away. I so, like that. Yeah. Well, you're right. I mean, from for 1922 to to uh, craft something that holds up even to today mm-hmm. is is just astonishing. It is. Yeah. I mean, this is still my all time favorite vampire movie. 1922 Nosferatu. Um, that is number three on our list. Was there any more underneath that heading nope. you wanted to mention? No, because I shoved them all under the last one. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Get out of the way. Uh, but that, yeah, that's a great one. I'm moving up to number two. This is the one that I said could also definitely qualify right off the top of my head for a sound design mention as well. This, oh, my, yes. This is from just uh, last year. It's the story of two lighthouse keepers. Wikis. What? trying to maintain their sanity while living on a remote and mysterious New England island in the 1890s. The cinematographer, Jaron Blaschke, in The Lighthouse. weeks, two days, help me to recollect. Oscar-nominated cinematographer. Oh, and well-deserved. That's one I couldn't believe that he didn't win. Yeah. Because this, this, I mean, I remember when we saw it right away, we talked about, the first thing we talked about was the ratio. 
Well, oh. the, the foghorn. <laughs> Can't no, get away right. from that foghorn. You're right, the ratio. Uh, we talked about the aspect ratio, and right away, we I think after the movie, we were discussing it and what we thought this man or that, that man. And I remember I said I thought it had to do with the uh, claustrophobia, the confinement, and you said, well, of course, it's Egger, so it has to do with the, the, time, period. the, the time period. And it turns out we were both right. Woo! Uh, <laughs> because... <laughs> Of course, he was very, very insistent on using the types of cameras and the types of shots that were around at that time. <laughs> and he probably built them by hand. <laughs> but uh, as he built the, uh, as they actually built the lighthouse. But uh, it's also done to convey the, the confined spaces that they were in. So, but man, it, it works. And black and white, again, is perfect. Perfect it for is. this movie. It is. And it's, it's it's such a mood, along with the sound design, yeah. and yes, the foghorn, that makes this movie just unforgettable. Yeah, and the performances, obviously. Well, yeah, yeah. But, you know, uh, at any time, and, and I go back to um, The Ring, right? My favorite scene in The Ring, which is weird because there are so many great scenes in The Ring, but my favorite scene is when Naomi Watts is digging around Brian Cox's living room and trying to figure out what's going on. And what you can see, she's in the dark. You see the light from the lighthouse swing through the room and then leave and then swing through the room and then leave. And then you're waiting to see Brian Cox show up right. in the room. And he does. And you, you're never going to expect him to do what he does when he does show up. But it's such an effective thing, a use of light in that. Well, and, and similarly, and to a much greater degree, the black and white, I think, of the lighthouse makes that beam of light mm -hmm. so much more important. It's so much more vital to what's happening in the film. And then also the shadow and the lack of light. Well, now we're going to get technical because <laughs> these guys were so caught up in authenticity. They had, they had a custom filter made so that no red light got through. It, okay. discar it just discarded any red light, which means they, they said Caucasian skin gives off a lot of red light and they they didn't Mine want does. <laughs> <laughs> they didn't want any of that to get through and then it became much darker so it amplified the variations within the red tone and also they shot it on apparently double x stock black and white and it required much more light to get exposure so they had to pound so much more light into the set that sometimes it was almost blinding to Defoe and Pattinson in order to get this effect. So the lengths that no these guys so go cranky. to, I know, <laughs> I know, and all the farting, I mean, gee whiz, no wonder they went insane, but the lengths that, that they, they went through to get this look and, but, but it, it pays off oh, it does. incredibly well. This looks like nothing else. It looks like you're immediately you're transported not to another time, but almost to another world. Yeah. Yes, it's supposed to be New England, but it's also like some, much like the themes of the movie, it's some chapter in Greek mythology where it's yeah. not even on this planet. Yeah. It's some, so, yeah. so strange It's a looking. descent into madness, and anytime you have a movie that that is, that is the point, a descent into madness, you have to match it with the look of the film. I mean, it, you know, it, it can't just look like your run-of-the-mill ordinary film, and I think that this one really does that incredibly well. Uh, like the polar opposite of this movie, but it is another film where I think the cinematography, as roughshod as it is, is the perfect match, the perfect match for the subject of the of the film, and that's the Texas Chainsaw Massacre. Mm. Uh, it's just gritty and gorilla and no holds barred, and it just, it was so, it doesn't look like anything else that came out in 1974, and you just didn't expect to see it, but it was such a yucky, perfect match 
for what was you were watching on the screen. And as we've mentioned many times, part of the horror there is that it is in broad daylight. Exactly. And which most people don't expect to have right. horrific things. Yeah. And they're expecting it to be to be in the dark. Uh, great comment from Nathan. Uh, he says, "Unbelievable use of sound," and that is that oh, is yeah. so true. The sound design is is impeccable. So it would not only land on a list about sound design, it would probably land on a list about best hair <laughs> in horror. Really, for Willem Dafoe alone, which is that's all his own. I remember when we interviewed years ago when the movie um, Semi Pro came yeah. out, the one with Will Ferrell. We interviewed him, and yeah. everybody wanted to know that, yes, that was his own hair. Yep. And Willem Dafoe, it's an incredible do <laughs> and a beard. And that really adds to the character. Just yeah. It adds to his craziness. But, it does. Yeah, but thank you, Nathan. Yeah, the, sa <laughs> the sound in this, along with the look, is, is incredible. And it's, it's one. I think doing research, among all the films that we talked about here, I think doing the research for this one, made me want to watch it again, like oh, right yeah. now. Let's. We'll see you. We'll see you. We'll tell you about number one some other day. <laughs> it, it's, it's such a trip in, in all ways, trying to get inside the, the look of it, the meaning of it, and just, and just live in it. Yeah. Uh, it's, it's fantastic. And that's why, I'll be honest, this probably would be not my number one. I know. I, think. I know it that really it would. would. It really would. But. But it's not. It's number two, because what do I know on our, <laughs> on our list of cinematography in horror? And that takes us up to number one, and this is from 2006, although I do agree. This, this looks fantastic. And this is set in Spain of 1944. The bookish young stepdaughter of a sadistic army officer escapes into an eerie but captivating fantasy world, Pan's Labyrinth. There will be a journey you believe in darkness there can be light in misery there can be beauty in death there can be life pan's labyrinth so great so great guillermo navarro has been the cinematographer for so many Guillermo del Toro films, including The Devil's Backbone mm -hmm. and Kronos, and and they all look great. I mean, all of and and I feel like this is a, he. This is a director who really requires a cinematographer who understands his vision because his vision is so unlike everybody else's. It's so mythical. It's so you know um, seeped in folklore and and childhood dreams. And this one in particular, and for me. I know that it's not his, didn't win Best Picture, didn't even win Best Foreign Language Picture, but Pan's Labyrinth, to me, is Del Toro's high watermark. I think it's a, it's a nearly flawless film. And I think one of the things about the way it's shot uh, is that it, it's so lush and beautiful that it doesn't necessarily feel like a tragedy or like a horror film, regardless of the fact that it is very definitely both, you mm -hmm. know? And when you're in the cave with her before you see him put his hands up with the eyeballs on his hands, it captures the war, it captures the forest in a way that is at this, it's that step between realism and fantasy. And, and yeah. uh, Navarro captures that just perfectly. Yeah, he does. And one of the ways he did that, here we go getting technical again, um, he shot a lot, they shot a lot of day for night, especially in the forest. 
And it, when it was very difficult to get the artificial light. And they kept, Navarro purposely kept the lighting effects that could only be attained with sunlight. And then when they did that, that ultimately jarred the image when it passed itself off as night, which created uh, an aura of experimentation in the mm. final image. So some of these things, these these geniuses with their with their technical abilities, some of the things they can achieve by doing these experimental techniques, not only with uh, cinematography, but with sound. And you get a look, just like you were saying, that is caught between a fantasy world mm -hmm. and a reality world, yeah. which, which I think on this movie was just was such a necessity yeah, to absolutely. achieve the mood that you wanted because that's yeah. where this movie lived. Oh, yeah. As, as Ophelia was back and forth, back and forth. It had to feel like you were stepping into a whole other world. Yeah, and that, and that you could equally believe that, you know, it's that the reality is so unreal that there's it's it's equally unbelievable as the unreality is mm -hmm. and i think that that's one of the reasons that this film is so is so smart and is so touching because it's not just that this little girl is seeing this and believing that it's true but as an audience you're not sure am i supposed to think this is really happening or it's not really happening mm -hmm. and he and he does this, a lot of this a lot of similar themes in a devil's backbone a lot a lot of similar themes uh, but this one is is so much more magical uh, in that it's not a ghost story. It's a story about these these fairies and monsters and woodland creatures. And it's just it's so beautiful uh, and also so sad. Yeah. And this was originally supposed to be the middle film of a trilogy about the Spanish Civil War. Of course, The Devil's Backbone was the first. But as of right now, I don't think there are any plans for the third film. Get on it. He actually, Del Toro himself, because he no longer trusts translators after uh, encountering problems with previous subtitled movies he did all the english subtitles himself wow to make sure they were right katie chimes in with i'll never look at a wine bottle the same again no <laughs> yeah and really the iconic image from this one is oh yeah doug jones yeah uh which the pale man yeah the pale man and it, it, that's another case of contrasting color yeah because his pale skin and his pale appearance in the middle of all that other tableau, yeah, uh, is so striking. It is. along with the uh, hands for eyes, right? And of course, he just—I mean, physically—he's such a perfect um, actor for so many he Del Toro is. films. He really you know, is. He just—he's so gangly and yet so elegant and graceful. That is such an incredible character. So that's our number one. Well, apparently, the live chat loves that at number oh, good. one. So. Uh -huh. nah. <laughs> I know there's some Lighthouse fans out there, too. So was anything else underneath uh, that, that heading? Of, no. Oh, just, just sitting there at the yeah, top. Yeah, just sitting there just at the top. Life. I just wanted to talk about a few of, of Navarro's other films. Mm -hmm. So, yeah. Yeah. Well, that's a great, great list. And as I said, it, it probably would have been easier to make this a, a double yeah. a double podcast. But uh, this was fun talking about these. And I know we got uh, a lot of ideas and a lot of great comments. So always keep those coming. We always like to keep the conversation going. If we can, you can always find us. On Twitter, we're at Fright Club Pod. Also on Facebook and on Instagram, we're at Mad Wolf Columbus. And the main website where you can find all of our written reviews, our other weekly podcast about all the new movies that come out uh, called The Screening Room. That's all at madwolf.com. So we talked about this being the result of a poll. Yes. And number two that came in second to this was Eyeball. So that's, that's coming up sometime that will be down coming the line, up but not next. Soon. No, the next one um, is actually one we've already recorded. 
And we want to thank writer-director Sam Kuljesnik for joining us, and we covered grief. Mm-hmm. Uh, we talked about grief and horror, which may not sound like a good time, but I'm telling you, it is such a brilliant list of movies. And also, she is such a great guest. Yeah. She, she really brought a lot of insight uh, to the conversation. And she has her first, her first novella is out called True Crime. It's, it's absolutely brilliant. And I promise you, you would love it. Because you're listening to this podcast, you're absolutely her target audience. So look it up. It's Samantha Kolesnik, True Crime. And I also got the impression in talking to her for that podcast that she hadn't seen a lot of the movies. So she had, when when we talked, she had just seen them. Yeah. So we were really getting some fresh perspective on uh, on those. And and a lot of them we really had not seen for a while. So it was interesting to get that. You're just coming off it and you're getting these, these fresh ideas about it. So you're right. She brought a lot to it. And that was a lot of that was a lot of fun. So that is grief. That's going to be our next uh, Fright Club in the studio, correct? Um, recording. So, uh, and as of yet, we don't know if we're going to be lucky enough to be back in front of that live audience at the Gateway Film Center yet for our next Fright Club live. We'll we'll let you know. We That's right. we hope so. We miss everybody there. We do. I, I know everybody misses seeing seeing movies with the theater experience, especially at the Gateway, and yeah. and we are chief among those those fans. But, uh, you know, we're only going to do it when it's safe and when it's right. That's right. That's right. So uh, we will certainly let you know. In the meantime, hope everybody is safe. Hope everybody is healthy. Can't thank you enough for getting together with us uh, tonight. Until next time, we really appreciate yeah. you stopping by, as we always do. And she is Hope Madden. He's George Wolf. And this is the Fright Club Podcast. Should we do it together? Yeah, let's. Stay, Stay frightful, frightful, my friends. friends. Harmony. <laughs>